Hello and welcome to the History of the Cops, episode 73, The Saga of Ibn Raga. First, a correction. Last time in the Muqattam account, I said that the church that was built as a result was the church of St. Macarius. That was Bartaibu, Bart, tongue twist. It was the church of St. Mercurius, not Macarius. A different saint. Apologies. So last we stopped at the death of Abraham around 978 AD. After a short but a very active exceptional, may I add, reign of three and a half years. When he died, Al-Aziz was the Fatimid Caliph, the son and the designated successor of Al-Mu'izz. He, for the most part, was handed down a pretty good inheritance. The economy was growing, Egypt borders were more or less pacified, and by now, the Fatimids were accepted as legitimate rulers. But there was one problem left Al-Aziz, or an opportunity, depending on how you see things. Syria and Palestine. You see, the Fatimids did not come to Egypt to rule Egypt. Nope, they came to Egypt as a prerequisite step to toppling the heretical Sunni Abbasids and wishing she had against the Byzantine infidels. That's why people signed up to fight for them. They needed to control Syria to do either of these things. Al-Mu'izz, with a sensible court around him, and for many practical considerations, slowed down the expansion to consolidate his rule, which was reasonable, even to the most zealous of his followers. Al-Aziz, on the other hand, well, he had no excuses. When he took his office, Damascus had just fell to an independent Turkish warlord who was previously employed by the Abbasids, but got expelled from Iraq after the typical back-and-forth factional fighting. With the help of the population who preferred an independent warlord to a Shia caliph, he quickly grew his sphere of influence from just Damascus to modern Lebanon and northern Israel, a functional state by all rights. And so, Al-Aziz had to intervene. But you get the feeling that he was being contained by Ibn Kallas, who preferred a softer touch rather than Al-Aziz's tendencies to believe the Fatimid hype and jump into a holy war to go conquer both Baghdad and Constantinople. Either way, within a few months of his ascension, he entrusted Jauhar, the conqueror of Egypt, and a pretty old general by now, to take an army and defeat the emerging Syrian state. The only problem is, Jauhar have been in retirement for a while now, kicking back and relaxing in Cairo, so he was not in a great shape to be leading armies. The Turkish warlord, despite having only a corps of 300 professional soldiers, augmented by irregular Bedouins, 
defeated the much larger Fatimid army, and Jauhar had to endure a year and a half siege in Ascalon, a city in modern Israel that will be super important when we get to the Crusades. Basically, it was the best place to defend Egypt outside of Egypt. And so, Jauhar and his troops had to endure the siege until an agreement could be reached. And it was bad and a humiliating one. The Fatimids were to give up all of Syria and Palestine, except Gaza, and in return get an honorable mention in the Syrian mosques. The Turkish warlord agreed that the Fatimid Caliph name, as opposed to the Abbasid one, be mentioned in the Friday prayers, which wasn't nothing. Propaganda-wise, it was very helpful. But there wasn't even a nominal tribute in the deal, like what Ibn Tolun had to do with the Abbasid caliphs back in the day. So naturally, the situation could not stay for long as is. With the prodding of Ibn Kilis, Al-Aziz started recruiting Turkish soldiers and adding them to his army of mostly North African tribes. Sort of, if you can't beat them, then you may as well buy them. A short-term expediency that worked out, but will cause tons of problems in the future. As these guys literally just showed up and started making the verbal troops disposable. And so, with his Turkish mercenary in place, Al-Aziz left his palace in Cairo and personally led the new army. But even then, a softer touch was pushed heavily by Ibn Kilis, and so compromises were made. Some of the Bedouin tribes, especially the Karmatians, were given money to leave and go to their home base in Bahrain. The Turkish warlord, after a minor defeat, was persuaded to go join the Caliph in Cairo for a large pension and a court position. His Turkish entourage was also joined to the army at high positions, sometimes leading Berber troops, which will cause a lot of resentment in the future. Despite being abandoned by their leader, the citizens of Damascus resisted anyway. They closed the gates and refused to let the Fatimids in. It took almost eight years of constant field campaigning against Damascus and the Bedouin tribes of the area that did not leave to finally bring it under control in 983. And by then, it became clear that the North African time as the premier soldiers of the Fatimid Caliphate was over. Syria was not conquered by them. No, it was conquered by the Turks. By 985, every major city in Syria was governed by a Turk, despite the objection of Ibn Kilis, who can clearly see the folly of this policy. He wasn't necessarily opposed to Turks in general. Remember, he was the one that advocated to recruit them in the first place. Ibn Kilis valued talent wherever it resided, and he would use the Turks extensively 
around Mecca and Medina to keep the peace. So, it wasn't the Turks as an ethnicity per se. Rather, he was opposed to Turks who had an independent base of support and drawing from Syria's resources was a dedicated group of professional soldiers around them. That was a dangerous combination. Not to mention, he really didn't want to fight the Byzantines, which meant he advised Al-Aziz to not mess around in northern Syria and Aleppo, to leave these places as an independent weak state serving as a buffer. This way, the Mediterranean can stay peaceful for trade, and he can continue to cultivate the Byzantines as a stable trading partner. Using the Turks in Syria meant constant war. That's how a Turkish general kept the loyalty of his men, by constantly fighting and rewarding them with booty. And this war was bound to draw the Byzantines in, and sooner or later weaken the strength of the Fatimids. Trade. So yeah, Ibn Kilis had a plan. A really good one. One that in addition to the defensive foreign policy in Syria, worked on winning over the populist Tidashia cause via education, as he was extremely active in Al-Azhar, and charity, as the Fatimids in their early days spread a lot of money and missionaries around. And it wasn't just an abstract plan by the end of Ibn Kala's career. No, he truly believed in the Shia project. Not religiously per se, we will get there in a second, but politically. He could see an empire stretching from the Atlantic to the Caucasus Mountains, and he knew how to get the Fatimids there. By avoiding conflict with the Byzantines, and slowly adding territory via a combination of Shia missionary work, i.e. Dawah, money, and blame all diplomacy. Medina, Mecca, and Yemen were all added this way. Really, he could see that the Abbasids were dead. It was just a matter of winning over their subjects. Alas, all things come to an end. Yaqub ibn Kilis died in 991 AD, after close to three decades in and around the ruler of Egypt. Unlike most of the other figures behind the throne in our history, he was never really a puppet master, rather a faithful servant. In a matter of fact, Al-Aziz ended up imprisoning him a couple of times for opposing the Caliph's policy openly. But his talent and intelligence were immediately missed, and Al-Aziz brought him back into favor pretty quickly. As Hugh Kennedy put it in his Prophet and the Age of the Caliphate book, he, more than anyone else, had guided the Fatimid Caliphate through its early difficult years. And lest you forget, Ibn Kilis was brought from obscurity by a black eunuch slave, Kafur. He was an enigma, a great man of history, 
if such men existed. We are lucky, as his story shows up in Jewish, Christian, and Muslim sources. And all of them tell of a complicated relationship between Ibn Qabas and religion. He kept a circle of Jewish confidants and business managers to manage his personal holdings. And even to his last day, he was pretty well connected to the Jewish community in Fustat. But in the same time, he absolutely tore into Jewish rituals and traditions, publicly and probably often. He hired and appointed Copts in high government position. But again, strictly for talent and to counterweight other factions. And lastly, there is actually an Islamic law book attributed to him. Like I said earlier, he did work hard to cultivate Al-Azhar as an educational institution. But his flip-flopping between the Sunni and the Shia, not to mention his original conversion story, which was engineered by Kafur as a show of loyalty, making his relationship complicated with Islam as well. So yeah, who knows what was in the guy heart. But regardless, he served the caliphate well. Very well. His absence would be immediately felt. And left to their own devices, the Fatimids will quickly devolve into their own version of the Abbasids. Weak, bubbled figureheads controlled by mostly Turkish warlords. We will go back to Al-Aziz's reign post-Ibn Kilis and discuss its details next time. But basically, he immediately threw the practical and sensible policies of Ibn Kilis out of the window and went for the big, flashy, holy war. War that brought Basil II, known as the Bulgar Slayer, who was the real deal, by the way, a warrior to the core, into Syria, the first Roman to do so since the days of Heraclius, 300 years earlier. This will cascade into a series of events that will eventually conclude in a massacre of the Copts in Fustat and the rise of Al-Hakim, who seriously threatened the continuity of Christianity in Egypt more than any other caliph in our brief history. But before going there, we get a few interesting things happening with the Coptic patriarchy post-Abraham. You see, since Abraham this was sudden, there was no ready heir around, and it took about six months to assemble a senate in Cairo slash Fustat. There, it was agreed upon that they will just pick the head of the largest monastery in Egypt, the monastery of St. Macarius to be the Pope, a very reasonable and a sensible choice, as he would likely have a lot of administrative experience and would be well respected and known in monastic circles. Unfortunately, the monk in question, John, was a very old man and was unlikely to be able to carry out his duties for very long. So instead, they picked a younger monk who just happened to come with him, an unknown and obscure figure named Felicius, 
Now, Fulusius was quite unready for the job. He immediately had several financial obligations, a 3,000 dinar, quote-unquote, elevation gift to the government, to approve his ordination, and the 500 yearly dinars that the Alexandrian clergy were getting from Abraham. And, as he had no independent means to get that money, almost immediately, simony was instituted. But the civil elite in Fustat semi-contained the practice by reaching an agreement with Philosius. Essentially, something along the lines of you can ordain bishops for money or for other criteria as you wish, but we have to approve them first to make sure that they are suitable. The agreement worked for a while, until Philosius broke it and appointed a close associate of him to a wealthy area. The idea here was to make the associate a figurehead, while the patriarch gets access to the area financial resources. So it wasn't necessarily a bad idea, but a breach of the agreement nonetheless. In response, the civil elite straight up imprisoned the patriarch, and in essence, destroyed any veneer of independence that he may have retained. Despite being released relatively quickly, Philosius was broken from the episode. He left Fustat Cairo and stayed in the rich Delta town where he ordained his associate arm. There, he basically did nothing but live quietly in luxury and comfort for the next 24 years or so. As the history of the patriarchs puts it in a disappointing tone, quote, the patriarch persisted in collecting money and in eating and drinking. He basically quit, simple as that. The job was too hard, and he decided that he does not want to do it anymore. But in the same time, he kept receiving the money and the honors anyway. That part was fine. By the end of his reign, he was hit by a stroke and became totally disabled. The hand of the Lord had smitten him, as his biographer tells us. And with his spiritual and physical absence, someone else had to fill the void. And that person ended up being the Milkite Patriarch of Alexandria, Arsenius, a very fascinating individual. You see, Al-Aziz, our caliph, had a favorite concubine, eventually a wife, an Egyptian Milkite Christian given the title Al-Aziza after her husband name. Al-Aziza had two brothers, Arsenius and Orestes. The first Arsenius, as we have just mentioned, became the Milkite Patriarch of Alexandria by her lobbying. And the other brother, similarly, ended up the Milkite Patriarch of Jerusalem, giving the family almost a monopoly on the affairs of Christians who lived under the Fatimids. Now, Al-Aziza, the Caliph's wife and her sister, is even more important than these two guys in the big scheme of things. Her kids 
ruled the vast empire of the Fatimids for the next century. She actually bore several children, but the two important ones are the future caliph Al-Hakim Ba'amrillah and future de facto caliph Sept al-Mulk, a female caliph in all but name. Two figures that we will have plenty to talk about in future episodes. Just remember when we get to them. Their mom was a Christian until she died. She never converted. And both of their uncles were patriarchs. Al-Hakim and Sitt al-Mulk grew up with Christianity in and around them. Perhaps as much as Islam. At any rate, Arsenius was behind the revival of the Milkites in Egypt. And with that came some minor tensions about what church belonged to who. We are told by Michael, Bishop of Tennis, that the Coptic church lost a couple of important churches in Fustat in the reign of Arsenius. But either way, whatever tensions were around, they were very tribal, as Christians did well under Al-Aziz, up until the very end where his holy war with Byzantium spilled over. The government even tolerated a born Muslim converting to Christianity, in a legendary saga that is quite intriguing. You see, regardless of what Al-Aziz or whoever else was on top felt, as we saw in the last time with the moving of the mountain account, the Sunni mob of Fustat had its own mind and tended to be very intolerant, not just against Christians but also Jews and even other sects of Islam, like things as simple as outward expression of Shia rituals, the face of their caliph. Riots broke out for things as trivial as the caliph deciding to close the marketplace for a Shia holiday. So, to get away with a public conversion from Islam to Christianity was a major feat. It required effort from the central government, rather than just tolerance. And even then, as we will see, that effort had to be sustained over a lifetime. It was not just a one-time thing. Any other period than ours, it wouldn't happen. It just was not worth it. People had to leave that different locality or keep their conversion a secret. But not for Ibn Raga a Muslim-turned-monk-priest whose life of achievement counterbalanced that of the dormant Felicius. Even so, the story borderlines hagiography, saints' miraculous accounts. I actually think it has a lot of historical value. I decided to include it for two reasons. One, it captured the interreligious everyday life of Fustat, more than any caliphal decree or policy. And two, it captures very well the separation between the history of the patriarchy and the larger story of Christianity in Egypt. The patriarchy was in a bad shape under Felicius, practically doing nothing but collective money from hopeful priests and bishops. But in exactly this dark moment, 
that we get the account of Ibn Raga, the complete opposite of the patriarch. Ibn Raga grew up a good Muslim from a well-off family. His family could afford him an education, a pilgrimage to Mecca, and even a concubine when he was a teenager. So life was good for young Raja until he encountered the mob. Presumably in a mob riot where a Christian was being lynched for a rumor that he was a convert, Ibn Raja participated and came face to face to the victim. He, quote, took off his shoe from his foot and struck him with it. That's what you do if you're a young man in Fustat participating in an interreligious riot. Eventually, the riot concluded by killing the poor guy and burning his body. The experience with its violent end changed something in Ibn Raja, especially as the victim told him directly that he too will become a Christian. This haunted him for a while. It bothered him and he could not keep it away. And so, like any good Muslim at the time, he decided to participate in the pilgrimage to Mecca as a way to clear off his mind. But this made things even worse, as he ended up separated from his traveling companions and the isolation of the desert and long walks filled Ibn Raja's head of ideas. And this is where the accounts veers into familiar Coptic geographic elements. We are told that he was saved by a mysterious horseman who took him through the air from the barren desert. Either way, whether through the air or via more traditional mean, Ibn Raja ended up in Fustat, inside the church of San Mercurius, the new church built as a result of the mountain miracle. There, he spoke with the priest and eventually requested to learn more about Christianity. In secret, obviously, lest, quote, I should be burned with fire and the church should be burned on account of me. His learning process was quite extensive, and Severus of Lashmonin may have gotten involved, as interestingly, it was all done in Arabic. Ibn Raja and Sawirs will end up being close friends and companions, also it is hard to exactly bend down the timing of their meeting, whether it was during or after the conversion. In the meantime, pilgrims from Mecca came back and his family was told that he was separated from the group and probably died in the desert. They, after the expected mourning, accepted his death and started to move on until he was seen by a family friend leaving the church who then informed the family. By this point, Ibn Raja was far enough into his education to be ready to be baptized, but the priest would not do it to avoid trouble. He told Ibn Raja to go to the monasteries instead, 
there in the desert, it will be much safer to convert. But Ibn Raja would not do it. There was a real concern that he was not going to survive the trip there with his family alerted. And so, he was quickly baptized with the name Baal. You know, the Jewish zealot turned Christian missionary. Eventually, his family confirmed his identity and confronted him. To their dismay, their fears was confirmed. And now, to them, he was worse than dead. He was a Christian. Their fear of disgrace in the community was very real, and they immediately brought Ibn Raja back home and kept the whole affair a secret. For a whole week after, they alternated between threats and promises to get Ball to renounce his conversion. But he didn't, and so the family eventually gave up. They told him that he was dead to them. He would just need to leave Fustat. Quote, Do not dishonor us in the midst of the people, and do not put us to shame in this city. Ball left. He wanted to be a monk anyway. And so, he ended up in the desert again. Unfortunately, he was turned away by, quote, monks or without understanding, in the words of Michael, Bishop of Tennis. They told him that his conversion does not count, since it was in secret, that he needed to go back to Fustat and proclaim his willingness to die for his new face. And Paul did, to the panic of his family, who now truly feared for their position in Fustat, and were incensed to see Paul not only return, but return in monk closing. His father essentially locked him in his house, and started an escalating series of mental and physical pressure to make him renounce his conversion, which ended by the giving of his concubine to his brother, and by giving, I mean literally, in front of Paul and then drowning Paul's son from her in front of him. Finally, when none of it worked, the father decided to go through the legal process. And this is the important part for us here, for our historical purposes. Renouncing Islam by this point was a crime punishable by death. It was established law, with centuries of precedents and commentaries by legal scholars. Al-Hakim the Umrillah ended up hearing his case. I will get to the intricacies of Al-Hakim reign next week. But for simplicity's sake, this was very early in his reign, where it was more or less a continuation of Al-Aziz policies, i.e. very tolerant. He, quote, commanded him to be set free and to go wherever he wished. Now this is important. The government, the caliph himself, was okay with public conversion. Again, for the Ismaili Shia, the word of the caliph was the law. So the ruling, while raising a few eyebrows, 
was not technically against the law. But for the Sunni mob, that was a problem. They already had their divine law, and that law said that Ibn Raja should die. He was a marked man. For the rest of his life, the legal ruling did not make one difference in Ibn Raja's life. He would go to a place, his story would be discovered, and then he would have to leave it as a mob chase him. Even when he died, a mob attacked the church that he died in to get his body and burn it. But he was buried very quick inside to avoid that fate. When it was all over, he had left a considerable legacy. A new church was built by his own hands. He also wrote several apologetic books to defend Christianity from common Islamic attacks of the time in Arabic, which was a big deal. No one did that in Egypt, dare I say, ever. Even the great Severus avoided the subject. He much preferred to stick to the familiar Milkite Meaphysite discourse. In essence, Ibn Raja was the ultimate personification of the medieval saint, yet wholly unknown. His story is not even in the Synaxarium, the liturgical Book of Saints. He was buried by a certain Theodore Ibn Mina, the secretary of the Senate, who passed his position to Michael, Bishop of Tennis. As such, Michael's connection to Ibn Raja was very close. Close enough to preserve a word-for-word -word quote through Theodore, one that summarized the time pretty well. Paul, before his passing, told the secretary that, quote, All that happened to me in the way of torture and what befell me in the way of degradation did not trouble me, with the exception of three things, which were the coming together of my brother with my concubine in my prisons, the drowning of my son from her in my prisons while I was looking at him. But more serious than either of them was when the patriarch looked on at me while his disciples were demanding from me the dinars for his ordaining me a priest, and yet kept silence and did not forbid them, and did not send them away. Thank you for listening. Farewell, and until next time.